This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. What was happening with your mother that she just sort of buried this herself? I can't speak for her, but she did say, I just never thought about it again. Maybe she was covering for herself, too. Maybe. If your kids had a babysitter who was a serial killer, you might think differently about it, right? I certainly would. Oh, my God, I'd be terrified. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Oh boy, is this a harrowing story. Liza Rodman and her friend Jennifer Jordan co-wrote a book about Liza's childhood babysitter in Cape Cod in the 1960s. His name was Tony Costa, and he was a caring, exciting, and interesting caregiver. He was also a serial killer who took Liza to the woods where he buried his victims. The book is called The Babysitter, My Summers with a Serial Killer. Why don't, Liza, we talk about where we are in time, first of all. This is 1960s Cape Cod, is that right? That's right. It's at the very tip of Cape Cod in Provincetown, Massachusetts. And my mother owned a little strip motel along the road, along Route 6A. And her best friend and husband owned the motel across the street, which was one of the biggest motels that had ever been built on the Cape at the time. So she bought a hotel for lots of money? Or was she a single mom? Or how how did she manage that? Interestingly enough, it's one of the points we like to make is that women couldn't get a mortgage on their own in 1968. Wow. What, do they have to have a a co-signer or something? They had either had their spouse or a co-signer. And in the case of my mother, she was having such a good time down there, she wanted a motel across the street. So she got my grandfather to go in with her and co-sign. Well, he must have been pretty confident in her business abilities then. It was such a crazy time. He was confident in his own business abilities. My grandfather was kind of a grifter, but he was also a jack of all trades. So he taught himself how to do everything, including bookkeeping and accounting, through encyclopedias and books. Never went to school, never graduated the eighth grade. So he was confident in his own. I'm not sure how confident he would have been in her. She was pretty good like that, though. And in the end, she was great. Okay, so what is home life like for you? Do you have siblings? I have one sister who's younger. And 
remember, this is just summers now. This book takes place during the summers of my childhood there in Provincetown. So home life is my mother, my sister, and I at any given time. My father is pretty much absent. So it was basically my mother, sister, and I, and my grandparents live next door. Not at the hotel. No, this was during the year where we went to school was in a place called West Bridgewater, Massachusetts. And that's where we went to school. That's where my grandparents lived next door. But at the motel, it was my mother, my sister, and I, and anybody she hired. And then across the street was her best friend and anybody she hired. And that's how that worked. This sounds like a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week business. Was your mom just working her tail off the entire time? She must have been. Yes. Working during the day. She was a school teacher during the year. She came down. She was originally the head of housekeeping for my aunt's motel. And that's where all this started. And they worked really hard during the day, and they partied really hard at night. Define partied in your mom's world in 1960s Provincetown. Well, 1960s Provincetown looks a lot like 2022 Provincetown. Oh, okay. It's right at the tip of Cape Cod, and it's absolutely beautiful. But it's one big party. And the gay community was just beginning to sort of move down there from New York. It was always an artist community. You had the townies, the people who lived and grew up there for generations, and you had the summer people. And there was always this tension between them. But that's how I remember it, as one big party. They were always going out. They were always going to the bars. There was a lot of entertainment in the summertime. Was your mom a young mom? She was. She was 22 when I was born. So if I was 10, she was 32 at the time. And single. And single because she and your father had divorced. Mm -hmm. What was life like for you and your sister when your mom was out? We had a lot of babysitters, which is how this book came about. No matter where we were, we had my grandparents a little. But mostly my mother would hire her students to come or the neighbors to come. Or sometimes we were home alone. Or in the case of the summers, my mother's best friend who owned the Royal Coachman across the street had two children the same ages as my sister and I. So the four of us had a babysitter together. You were 10 at the time? I was seven, eight, nine, and 10. Wow. So over the summers, you would have different people babysit for you. They called my mother the babysitter finder. Oh. (laughs) Her friends used to joke about it. So if they were breathing, they were good. She used to walk up to people on the street and it was a joke amongst the friends. The guy who my mother hired to be the general manager at her motel was one of our babysitters. The guy next door was one of our babysitters. I don't think she thought about whether it was a guy or a woman. I really don't. I don't think she thought much about it. You never felt uneasy with any of these people that your mother had tracked down? Oh, no, no. I felt very uneasy with quite a few of them. And the irony of the story for me, one of the many, is that I had way worse babysitters than Tony Costa. So I had really like outwardly drug-addled babysitters who would cut our nails down till they bled or I think the car accidents in the book. I mean, we had some bad babysitters. And Jennifer, you're a journalist. You helped her write the book. How did you get involved? You were friends, right? At one stage, I was between projects and I had always believed that this was just one hell of a story with one hell of an elevator pitch. Hello, I was babysat by a serial killer. And I said to her, well, you know, let me see if I can help you do this. Get this book out of your head and onto the page. The collaboration was, for me, 
magical because I came to the process after she had done 10 to 15 years worth of research. So I, as a forensic journalist, was presented with boxes and thousands of pages of information. And so, yes, she was there for me to say, now tell me again what happened on that time and tell me again how your mother reacted to that and tell me again how you and your sister dealt with that. But so much of the lion's share of real digging research, she'd already done. So for me, I came into this process just rubbing my hands together and also because it enabled me to spend two and a half, three years with one of my dearest friends on earth. So it's really been a gift in so many ways. That's incredible. And Liza, you sound like my kind of (laughs) co-writer. You come to the table with everything. You've already thought it all out. You have boxes of documents. So let's go back to my question, which is, what is your feeling about your mom and the decisions that she made? It's such a big question, and I'm still dealing with the fallout. I deal with it every day, almost every day. I don't know what she was thinking, except to say that she was thinking about her own next good time. Yeah. And they were having it. And probably she was someone who shouldn't have had kids. She was at the point that we enter this story. She's pretty pissed off. The church has abandoned her. My father is a disappointment. Her father is an open, raging alcoholic. So that's the point at which we enter the story for her. Yeah. It's always important for me to contextualize her, not to defend her, but to say she really had a lot going on. When you're a single woman in 1965 with two kids, people don't say nice things. And so this was the one friend that really didn't abandon her. They took care of her in a way. I know in later years, they wished they'd taken care of her in a different way. But that said, you know, she was pissed off. That's what she was thinking. I'm pissed off and I'm going to go and have a good time and get it out of me. The fact that we even had a babysitter was probably more than I would have expected from her. Well, we've talked about the litany of sounds like just horrible babysitters that you've had. Mm -hmm. And then you meet a man named Tony. Is this when you're seven? Is this the first summer that you and your sister spend with him? Yeah, seven, eight, 1966. Okay. So I would have been seven. His mother is hired by my mother to be a housekeeper at the Royal Coachman. And that was pretty characteristic of those places they'd open up for the summer, hire the locals. Anybody who wanted a job could have one. And they even had a van that used to drive into town every day, pick everybody up who was coming to work at the motel and bring them back. Wow. Because a lot of the people in town didn't have cars. And so... His mother was hired at the motel, and she was a sweet potato. She was loving and warm, and at least to me, the rest of my family, siblings slash cousins, remember her that way, too. And so that's how I met him, through her. What is Tony Costa like? He was born in 1944, so he would have been 24 in 1966. And he was already in, you know, he'd married a 13-year-old girl. Oh. 14. Met her when he was, when she was 13. Her mother, actually, she was also from a single parent family, wouldn't let them date. So they decided they were going to show her. And they went out and got pregnant, and then they had to get married. So let's start there. You're starting in that mindset of what is going on here. Yeah. So... By that time, they had three children by the time I met him. And, you know, by all accounts, he was a decent father. He was handsome as all get out. He's a little bit of a sweet talker. 
and really fancied himself. This is a place where when Jen and I were collaborating was interesting because I have memories that are dear. And Jen and I have a book in which he's as far from dear as he can get. But I don't have those memories. So trying to reconcile those two people was an interesting task. And she would say to me, I know, honey, but he's a serial killer. Yeah. (laughs) It provided an interesting tension in the book because we really loved him. My aunt tells a story. He would come driving up the driveway in his truck and she would holler out the back to the pool and say, here comes Tony. And we'd come flying out in our flip-flops and our towels and jump in the truck and off we'd go. Now, looking back on that, oh my God. Yeah. But at that moment, it seemed just absolutely innocent. So Tony is handsome. He's in his 20s. He's babysitting you and your sister. Tell me your sister's name again. Her name in the book is Louisa. Okay, so you don't identify her. No. Which is completely understandable. So you and Louisa are staying where with Tony whenever your mom needs him to watch you? Mostly traveling in the car. Okay. Okay. Mostly traveling in his truck. We used to joke about the fact that we hit every dump from Hyannis to Provincetown at one time or another. What we didn't know was that he was stealing things and hiding them at one dump or another. He was stealing drugs and burying them out in the Truro woods. So he had a whole network of places that he went to do one thing or another. There were stolen TVs in one spot and drugs in another. We didn't know that. So we were all over the place with him. Let me turn to Jennifer about this, even though I know you can answer this too, Liza. So why does this guy who is doing all sorts of illegal things that seem to be probably profitable, why is he taking two kids along? Tony was a Pied Piper and he loved his entourage. He loved the acolytes that would follow behind him like a row of ducklings. And Liza and her sister were just two of those ducklings. Yes, they were younger than most because most of his followers were teenagers. But he loved being looked up to like any egomaniac, like any megalomaniac. And so what better than a seven and eight-year-old child, girl, looking up saying, yes, Tony, you know, I love spearmint gum. And as Liza said earlier... It's not as if Betty, her mother, interviewed these people. It was, hey, you're breathing. You're going to get these kids out of my hair. Take them. Take them. So nobody was really noticing that Tony was high on drugs or stealing things and hiding them in dumps or breaking into doctor's offices and leaving with pillowcases full of drugs. It was just part of the scene of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the late 60s. I mean, everybody was wasted. Everybody was a little off. You know, Tony was a father. Tony was a husband. Tony worked, and he presented himself very nicely. He was always well-groomed. He was always clean. So there wasn't any talk about him being dangerous, maybe a little weird, a little off but not dangerous. Okay. It's really important to point out here that this was not a traditional, hi, I'm going to be out at 6.30 tonight, and I thought maybe you could come over and watch the kids. It wasn't that way at all. Okay. It was the antithesis of that. It was, Tony pulls up in his truck, and my aunt's out there saying, you don't mind taking them, do you? Hmm. He had gone to his mother and said, see if you can get me a job here. Yeah. And they needed a handyman. God knows they needed someone to do all those little jobs and take things to the dump. And it wasn't a full-time gig. It was no skin off his nose to have a few kids in the car that looked up to him. As Jen said, that's a very important point. 
And when you think about what the book is about, overarching, and the themes that are in this book, mental illness and unnoticed and undiagnosed mental illness is a big part of this book. And he, for whatever reason, that ego was truly out of control. So to have kids who are, particularly me, looking up to him and saying, gee, you know, will you teach me to smoke? Yeah. Will you teach me to blow smoke rings? You know, he was like my cousin. He felt like my cousin. So how many summers are we talking about when Tony is in your life, in your sister's life? 66, 67, and 68. Okay, so you're 8-ish, 9-ish, and 10-ish during this time. What about Louisa? She's two years younger than I. Okay. It's a weird town, and we had so many strange people in our lives. My sister, Louisa, from the book, has a great line where she says, you know, I was at a dinner party the other night, and I was sharing some of my childhood experiences from Provincetown, and other people don't think it's as funny as we do, because that's how we dealt with it. Right. Because it's all we knew. And that's a really important part of the story was, this was as nice as it got for us, and that's saying a lot. So we've heard from 8- and 9- and 10-year-old Liza about what Tony Costa was like. I, of course, want to talk about Tony as a serial killer. When, as an adult, do things start to click in for you? How long ago or what age were you? I was 35. I went back to school to finish my bachelor's degree as my kids were going off to high school and college. And I started having dreams. I was journaling. I was in a distance learning program. And part of that was journaling. And so... I started having these nightmares. And as a result of the nightmares, they were so violent and so scary and bizarre that I started writing them down to see if I could find a link between them. And the only real link was that I was being hunted. I was always in fear of my life, no matter where I was, no matter who it was. And there was always this man in the dream that I couldn't identify. In one, my husband tried to kill me, and then I, you know, I went into another room, and there's this man who I can't see his face. So this went on for a while, went on for six months, maybe even more. And then I had the Tony Costa dream that I write about in the prologue of the book, which was that I was a little girl, I was about 10 years old, and I had my little spaghetti strap nightgown on, and I was walking through the hallways. And he found me, and he backed me up against the wall, and he pointed the gun at my head and told me to count to 10 in Italian. And when I opened my eyes, he was gone. And then the whole thing unfolded before me in the dream. And, you know, light started streaming into windows. I mean, it was literally trying to tell me something. Now, Jen and I have a difference of opinion about what may or may not have caused those dreams. After I said to my mother, why am I dreaming about Tony Costa? And that's when she said to me, well... I know he became a serial killer. And you said, what the hell? It was a really kind of a watershed moment for me because it's that moment where everything slows down, stuff starts to line up, Hmm. things start to make sense. We've all had that moment at one time or another. And I thought, oh, there's something here. I'm not having those dreams about Tony Costa. And he became a serial killer. I never put together... I never really thought about it again. Provincetown was over. I moved on with my life. I knew I had some funky memories. And I knew I had some sensory memories that didn't make sense to me. I knew something nefarious had happened in Provincetown, but I never made the connection. Not till that moment in my kitchen. Liza alluded to it earlier. This is where she and I had a lot of work that we had to do in writing the book because 
I firmly believe, as a forensic journalist and as her friend of all these years, that she, in fact, did witness something in those woods that her brain is protecting her from, to this day is protecting her from. And that through her journaling and through her going back to get her BA and through her really figuring out her writing, which forces you to dig deep and to start processing thoughts and memories and that that is why 20 years later, she started having these violent dreams about Tony Costa. I don't think that if he had been the totally benign, avuncular caretaker who bought her popsicles and took her for summertime rides with her hair blowing in the wind in the truck, that she would suddenly... 20, 25 years later, have a dream with him pointing a gun at her head and having her wake up with the adrenaline coursing through her body the way you do in those kinds of nightmares. I believe, and, you know, at some point, maybe we'll have her go under some really good hypnosis, that there is something that she witnessed and probably in the woods with Tony Costa. You felt threatened by him for some reason, Right. Something happened. Right, Liza? I mean, no, I'm not saying that you remember that, but somewhere in your subconscious, you knew something was wrong. Maybe it was the drug deals. I mean, there's got to be something. Why would I go? Yeah. Why would I take that story and go and do 15 years of research? What was I looking for? Yeah. I was looking for myself in there. I was trying to find myself in those papers. It's the only way I can describe it. And I, I don't disagree with Jen. I just don't have that. I don't have access to that. Although when I was first writing this book, the name of it was The Memory Heist. So that should tell you something. Well, let me ask you about your mom because I adore my mother. She is a little bit of a gossip. I would have heard if I had been babysat by a serial killer, probably as soon as she thought it was appropriate to tell me what was happening with your mother that she just sort of buried this herself. Yeah. I asked her that. I asked her that because when I was writing, she contributed to the book. It wasn't until later that she... So some of those memories there are with her help. I think she said, I never thought about it. We left Provincetown in November or October, November, 1968. And then he was arrested in March. That was a long time. I can't speak for her, but she did say, I just never thought about it again. Maybe she was covering for herself, too. Maybe. If your kids had a babysitter who was a serial killer, you might think differently about it, right? I certainly would. Oh, my God, I'd be terrified. But I will say, thank goodness you and your sister weren't there when he got arrested because talk about traumatizing events for a little kid to hear someone say, did you hear that this happened? So we knew something had gone down. We never put a name or a face to it, although we must have. Yeah. We must have. And my memory is so good on so many things. And entering the music of that time, is it's very easy for me to conjure and remember this, what exactly what the sand feels like. Or, you know, we used to climb under the building. I can remember exactly what that was like. So my memory is so good in so many places, but I don't have any memory of that. Well, let's just kind of go through his life. What do we know about him? What are the series of events that turn him into a serial killer? Jen? He didn't become a serial killer. I think he was born a serial killer and eventually triggered. Liza and I have done a lot of research and talked to a lot of psychoanalysts about the process and the genetic makeup and the childhood trauma history of psychopaths. And Tony had all the markings and he was eventually triggered. 
And we will never know with the five victims that we know of, we'll never know exactly what triggered him in each of those instances, probably a combination of things. One of the major triggers was his wife finally sued for divorce. And she was, from 13 years old until the day she filed for divorce, his only anchor, his only real true north, his only safe spot. And then she finally had enough. And so that is when we at least know he started to unravel in a real way. But being sued for divorce does not make a serial killer, but it certainly may trigger one who believes that everyone is his little duckling, is his little follower. Well, tell me, either one of you, tell me just about the victims and what ends up happening. Who are these women? Well, there are five of them. Go ahead, Jen. Yeah, he was not a the kind of serial killer that would pick up a hitchhiker and leave her in the ditch. He knew all of his victims. And that's where, again, back to Liza's memory versus my coming in as a journalist looking at the evidence in front of me, I think he was grooming Liza because he groomed all of his victims. So they, in some degree, trusted him enough to get in his car, go out to the woods, be with him alone in ways that obviously they shouldn't have. Let's go through the victims one by one and just kind of give me a quick overview of how we met him and what we think happened. Sydney is the first one. Is she in her teens or early 20s? Teens, late, late teens. And she meets him in a bar. She's working in a bar that he goes into, and they strike up a friendship, a friendship over speed. Sydney had a little speed problem. And so they get into a relationship around drugs, and people saw them around town holding hands and whatnot. And then they pulled off a heist of a pharmacy, and they took the drugs and they buried them in the woods. And she was killed right there in the woods where the drugs were buried. So something happened. They went in to get the drugs, and then we don't know. So that was Sidney Monson, last seen with Tony Costa. Liza and I had an incredible resource in this research from Tony himself. He wrote what she and I call the piece of shit because it's just this almost unreadable prison memoir, prison diary, prison kind of fictionalized truth. And in that, he describes the murders of each of these women. And as Liza said, always blames it on somebody else. So we know that he alludes to being triggered. He alludes to Marianne laughing at him. Mm -hmm. He alludes to Susan being a pest and hanging on his neck. And, ugh, you know, no, I'm not going to be your boyfriend. And he tells about Sydney, beautiful Sydney, and how all of a sudden he was stabbing her with a knife in the woods. So... While he's blaming somebody else, he's still describing the murders. So she and I extrapolate through our research of knowing what triggers a serial killer that he was annoyed. He was bothered. He was shamed. He was all those verbs that will trigger a fractious, fragile personality. And each of the five that we know about, because we do believe there are more that have never been found, in some way threatened his ego threatened his sense of self, and he could not abide it. Right. Christine said she was going to marry someone else. That was what happened with Christine. She told him she was going to marry someone else. 
So who was number two? That was Susan Perry, the one who was a pest and drove him crazy and hung on his neck and wanted to move in with him. Yeah. And so Pat and Marianne are four and five. Is that right? They are. Who was Pat? Pat was a school teacher. She was an elementary school teacher in Providence, Rhode Island. And Marianne was a student at the time, and they'd been longtime friends. And they were just out for a winter weekend away. And they found a rooming house in Provincetown. And they'd been to Provincetown. Uh, Pat had been the year before, the summer before, and had loved it. She was there with her boyfriend. So she said to her friend, let's go. Hmm. So off they went, and they had the misfortune of being in the same rooming house as Tony Costa. And that's where they met him and shared a bathroom. And that's how he got access to their car and got them out to the woods. The killing ground where he buried these women is adjacent to a cemetery. It's about a quarter mile back in the woods from an old cemetery in Truro. One of the things that we knew about Pat was that she loved to do the gravestone rubbings. Mm -hmm. And so that maybe that's how they got her out there. That's how he got her out there. And it could have also been that he said, hey, I've got some weed in the woods. You want some? I think it was probably a combination of those things. And they ended up being victims four and victims five. How was he ultimately caught? He took their car. And Jen has said so many times, and she's exactly right, that if Tony Costa hadn't been a greedy you-know-what, and wanted that car more than he wanted anything, they never would have caught him. He implicated himself when he found out that they were looking for these women, obviously two women who have careers and lives just disappear. And so they're looking for the car. And Tony walks into the police station and says to Jim Mead, Jimmy, I have their car. Why? It's a good question. I think it goes back to the megalomania. I have their car, but... I don't have any idea where they are. First, he told the story that they'd gone to Canada to get an abortion. When you're crazy, you're crazy. And he was crazy. I mean, you don't walk into a police station and implicate yourself. But he thought he had some grandiose imagination of himself, that he was too smart for the police and he was too smart to get caught. Were you ever in the woods where these women were buried? Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. We were in the woods for various things. The Truro dump is very close to the woods. So there were parties out there that I remembered that we wrote about in the book. There were just opportunities for him to, I think, this is what I think is happening. And again, in retrospect, I didn't know why I was in the woods. We were just hanging out with Tony. In retrospect, I think he was picking up some drugs from his stash. And so he'd park at the edge of the woods and run in and run back out. Sometimes he'd be gone for a long time. Other times we'd actually drive in there and he'd dig stuff up and be running around. He had a garden out there. And so one of the ways that I connected with him, because I didn't have a dad, but I had a grandfather who had an amazing garden Hmm. and who was teaching me how to garden. And so Tony said he had a garden out there. I was like, I know I can do this. I know gardens. I may not be able to blow a smoke ring yet, but I know gardens. So there was a little bit of that. There was a little bit of connection around that. I do remember, and I think we've written about it in the book, about being out there and saying, this is no garden I've ever seen. So there were numerous occasions. That was one of those sensory memories I had was that rocking in that truck and being so hot in the truck sometimes. Because you get into those dense woods and it can be quite claustrophobic in terms of the heat. 
So all those sensory memories sort of have stayed with me over a lifetime. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you is, what are the visceral things that trigger memories from your time with him? I know you already mentioned the music from the mid-60s, mid to late 60s. Is it being in a bus that rocks a certain way or what is it? I think it's definitely being in the truck. We wrote about this, about my feet up on the dashboard. And I was always with my little painted toes and I can see my feet on that dashboard. Those kinds of things... When McCartney was recently interviewed, the interviewer asked him, he said, when you're driving along in your car and a Beatles song comes on the radio, what do you do? And he said, well, first I sing along. (laughs) But then I'm dropped right back into that studio where we're laying down those tracks. Hmm. And the music was like that for me. To this day, a song from that time will come on the radio and I know every word. And Tim will look at me, my husband will look at me and say, How in the world? I don't know. There's just something about music and memory that has provided me with this because I learned to sing and I learned to love music in that truck and in my mother's car as well. I mean, it was all we had. Hmm. It really was, you know, it was all we had. We had AM radio. That was it. There was no Sirius. There was no cable. There was no anything. There was one station, WRKO out of Boston. Tell me about the trial. Once they make the connection, he goes on trial and pleads not guilty, I'm assuming. So after Tony tells Jimmy Mead that he has his last two victims' car, he presents himself to the police station and then for the next month or so keeps going back and just talks himself through, you know, circle, circle, circle talk. And his lies become lies upon lies Tony just could not keep his own story straight. He was the last seen with many of his victims. So they found the first body by accident. And then for a month, because they had seen the car out there, someone had seen the car parked out there. Yeah. And so they searched for a month after they found the first body. They found Sydney and the two missing girls from Providence. They went and arrested him. But Jen's right. They did. They had his number early on. They just couldn't pin it on him. I know this is a weird thing to focus on, but I am shocked that they were able to find a body in the woods that had been buried, and they found it in February. Wasn't there just feet and feet of snow on top of it? There was a dusting when they were looking for Susan. But on Cape Cod, the climate is such that you have the ocean effect. So you'll get a blizzard, but it goes pretty quickly on Cape Cod. Snow doesn't usually stick around. Okay. I like a little weather talk sometimes. So what is the ultimate sentence? I'm assuming he's convicted. He is. He's convicted to life in prison. They consider him a sexually dangerous person, but he thinks he's going to get out. But no death penalty for him. They took that off the table before the trial began. And eventually in 1974, he was incarcerated for five years, I guess, overall, including the trial period. And he was found hanged in his cell in 19, on Mother's Day. Wow. 1974. Self-inflicted, I'm assuming. There's some question about that. But it's officially a suicide. But the police said he won't last long up there. They're a conservative bunch in prison, oh. which is, you know, one of the many ironies of this story. Because it was a sexually motivated crime? Is that why? Exactly. Wow. Okay. So what was the reaction when this started unfolding, Liza, of your mother and your sister, all of this spilling out? Well, I'll just give you briefly my mother's reaction, which was at first she cooperated, gave me a lot of her stories, some of which did not make the book. But nevertheless, she told me a lot of stories that I hadn't known before. And then when we had the galleys, I said, Mom, um, the book is here. 
wasn't an easy process. It's not an easy story, but I thought maybe we could read it together. And she said, well, why? Am I not going to like it? And I said, mom, it's about my childhood. And she said, oh. And that was the last thing she ever said about it. And she died, what, Jenny, two months later, three months later? Yep, three months after the galley. Yeah. So that's what she said. Did you need something from her before she died? No. Okay. No, that the time for that had long passed. It would have been nice to... Oh, God. So I, it, It's such a big question. Right. It was what it was. And it was much easier to come to terms with after she's gone. Again, I think I said this in the beginning, I'll be dealing with it all my life. And my sister is, you know, so much younger than, than I am that she's got some memories. As I said, she talks about her cocktail party stories. She was much more defensive for my mother, hmm. even though she herself has called my mother a sociopath on many occasions. And I think she was. Wow. She feels much more defensive for my mother. And I feel defensive for her too, but also needed to tell the story. Yeah. I don't know. There was just no other way to put it. It was another one of those points of tension between Liza and me and the writing process in that Liza didn't want to use the word abuse in relation to her mother's treatment of her, even though Liza suffered physical abuse, emotional abuse, obviously a lot of neglect. She was protective of Betty, of her mother, in not wanting to call a spade a spade. And we finally resolved it, but it was hard for her to really admit and admit on paper that's going to be in history forever that she had an abusive mother. In her memory, you know, she protects not only Tony, who for her was one of the few kind adults in her life and male adults, but also of her mother. She was an abusive mother, and yet that's very hard for any daughter to admit to the world. So I want to end on an interesting thing that I heard Jennifer say, Liza, and that I just haven't asked you yet. She said that she believes that Tony was grooming you. Mm. Thinking back on that and all of your experiences and all of the research you've done and everything that you've read about Tony, do you think he was grooming you? <sighs> I have to say, Jen is not the first one to say that. I can't imagine it. I don't want to imagine it. And so I just know he was kind. Hmm. I just don't know. I think that that type of personality does those kinds of things. So I think it's entirely possible. Yeah. And again, I struggle with the 10-year-old Liza and the 63-year-old Liza, who know two different things. So it's absolutely possible. But I'm not nearly as sure as Jen is. Has this book offered you peace or has it dredged up even more from trauma that it sounds like has been latent within you for decades? Two things have happened. First of all, the, I feel very separate from the book now. And I feel that that's a good thing. That story's told now. That story burned a hole in me until it was told. So healing, I don't know. Healing's probably too simple, but certainly... I've exercised something. I'm constantly getting mail from readers who are saying, I have that mother. And those stories don't get told often enough. And so thanks for putting that out there where I can see the mother I had. Because think about mother in our culture. Yeah. Think about people need to see themselves when they're reading. It gives them a great deal of that knowing and belonging thing that we do and that we need as human beings. 
And so that thrills me. So it was worth dredging and then putting behind me so I could have this experience with people who clearly needed to see themselves. And it sounds like the story of your relationship with your mother, especially in that time period, was more traumatizing or more painful for you to tell than the story of being babysat by a serial killer, which is astounding to me. That's the irony. That's one of the many ironies of this book. It's about surviving her, not him. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Mike Vance on the most dangerous attorney in America. During the trial, it's the first time that you see these Harry Mason-like tricks that are coming into play. Brockman brings a young girl out from Houston to sit behind the defense table and cry. Oh. <laughs> That's, that was her job. That's a good job. At one point, he deliberately has the defendant stand up and punch one of the witnesses My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.